do the chanting every evening. It's nice to do. Any questions that are coming up? Or? Yeah. Um, this morning when we were talking about this thing, I sense some resistance to it. I mean, could you say a little bit more in terms of how is it frustrating and how is it liberating? Right. And what's that? Right. It's a good question. Restraint is a word that you probably find as frequently as any other word in the Buddhist uh, discourses. So it's really important to understand what it means. And I'm not even sure that restraint is the proper translation, you know, for whatever the Pali word is. Because it, in English it has such a charge and the connotation is something that's repression or suppression or holding down an image which might help you understand the flavor of restraint. Imagine yourself uh, as a fish. And then this big hook comes along with something tempting on it. (laughs) Restraint is not biting. In that not biting, there's actually freedom. It's like the fish is not getting hooked. It's not a question of suppression or holding down or repression. It's a question of wisdom. Right. That's true. That's true. And how do you get real clear that it's a hook? By paying attention. Or even some wise reflection about having been hooked countless times in the past. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a new experience. <laughs> you know. what, what do we get hooked on? I mean, we get hooked millions of times a day on thought forms going by. I mean, here these thoughts go by and and we get hooked and they carry us off and they create this little world and then, you know, they they go away and again we're back. We get hooked in desire. We get hooked in aversion. We get hooked in doubt. We get hooked in restlessness. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, it's so frustrating. I just, I'm just like ready to scream. <laughs> the whole practice of the meditation is really going from the level of the individual content, right, of working with this attachment and this attachment and this attachment, which, as you say, is an endless process, to understanding. Um, the nature of attachment. What do you have to do to let go? Okay, that's one thing. I mean, if you see that it's painful, and but even you could see it's painful and people still hold on. Right, so that might not be enough. really all you have to do to let go is to really let it be right? not to interfere so it's not a question because everything in its nature is arising and passing So there's nothing you have to do to add to the process of 
kind of pushing things out. Everything is going to come and go by itself. And so our only job is to be there, allow things to be just as they are, but without biting on the hook. How to do that? By paying attention. Mindfulness means being there for what's happening, whether it's a thought or an emotion or an image, without adding to what's there that sense of grasping or clinging. Okay, so, sometimes if you feel like you're straining too much and like there's too much effort to be, you know, so meticulous and precise and you're missing it because of that efforting, at that time it's helpful just to come back to the awareness of sitting and touching. That's all. Take a, take a really uh, a broader view. Uh, sitting and touching is easy just to be with. It's just very, very simple. Um, and it's like you, you can use the sitting and touching to come back to neutral. Instead of the mind either reaching out or pushing away or that kind of tightness, it's like you just come back to a very neutral object. You follow? And in that, there's an ease. You just, it's, it's very simple. You just come back and feel yourself sitting and feel some touch points without trying to do anything and without trying to see anything, just being there. And in that openness, again, the whole flow will start to happen, but you'll be in a more balanced space. You know, a big part of the practice is uh, trust. And trust means... It means that ability to settle back and let things unfold as they will without thinking that you have to direct it. Because we're lousy directors. You know, we are. We, we don't know what's going on. Our thinking mind doesn't know. And so if we can let go of the trying to figure it out and really settle back and let, let the Dharma figure it out, let the Tao figure it out, it'll do a much better job. So in some sense, it's taking ourselves out of the way. And ourselves, by ourselves, I mean the thinking mind, the interfering mind, the comparing, planning, manipulating. Is that? Does anybody have any other kind of questions about restraint? Because it's a very important uh, idea to understand. And um, not a question so much, but seeing how I've been doing working with food, not directly, but sort of paying attention. And I've been watching how, without restraint, I've been making myself a victim. And I never saw that connection. Mm. And today, when those carrot things were served, and I cut a little piece, and I didn't want to miss it all, I, I defined for myself that was the middle path. And staying with that, and watching all the waves that came, and watching how I victimized myself. And, Wow, that gave me a great impetus for playing with that restraint. It's really, really feels good. Really, in some very deep sense, perfect restraint is perfect freedom. You know, because the mind is not being, it's, it's not going for the hooks. It's just like that fish, you know, which stays free in the ocean rather than, rather than being caught. But we've gotten it so confused, and I think a lot of it is cultural. You know, we've gotten what that mind state is like, which is really a state of freedom and strength, 
we've somehow confused it with repression and neurosis. And so that's why it's just really important as we're observing the mind and the nature of what causes suffering and what's freedom to really look at that so we can come to an understanding. I think it's part of the problem with language as well. The, the root of restraint is holding on. And, mm. uh, and it just isn't quite the right yeah. concept for what you're trying to convey with it. Mm. Do you have a... I can't think right off of a more useful word, but mm. I don't think it'll, it'll wash with, right. with English. Okay, well that's why it's important. And I, I have a feeling you're right to understand what what that word, even if it's not the proper word, the state it's actually, or, or what we're referring to here with it. Yeah. From the Pali, the word guard is much more suitable than the strength. The guard your sense towards means mm-hmm. restraint. Like you've already got it, set to guard. Right. Yeah, it's a much different yeah. kind of thing. Something I found useful in all that because of a lot of the words like restraint, letting go, have a lot of implications of judging that it's a bad thing to hold on to and it's a good thing to let go of. I found that um, just creating a, a space of allowance, number one, of the fact that that's what it is, that's the process, that's what's happening. That's the, um, these things are causing the results of a lot of suffering in mind. And knowing that the result of holding on or not guarding the doors is causing the difficulty and the pain rather than having to let go of it as a bad thing. So that whole quality of them changed, I think. Right. <coughs> Can you say something about the difference between spontaneity and impulsiveness? The way I understand the difference, impulsiveness comes from a reactive place of mind. Like something comes in and there's a reaction. And and the reaction may be without thought, may be an impulsive uh, movement. Spontaneity uh, again, as I understand as I understand, the, the mind space comes from a silent space of mind, not a, not a reactive one. As when the mind is really quiet, out of that silence comes a true, true spontaneity, a real in, intuitive response rather than a reactive one. And it's a, you probably know, I mean, you probably experienced what the difference, those are two very different uh, mind spaces. Uh, the example that to me is so beautiful of of true spontaneity um, is the art and poetry of some of the great Zen masters you know it's it's so incredibly spontaneous but it's coming from silence rather than rather than reaction I'm just appreciating how different this group is than the weekend. (laughs) 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 So nice. Something about working with feelings of unfairness about sort of the way the world is, the way just the way our government, etc., etc., all that is. It, it, it 
frustration, and it's an anger that's sort of irresolvable in some way, and I'm not sure how to work with it. Um, there are different, I, I, I see different levels of working with it. On one level, you could think of the government as analogous to a pain in the knee, or pain someplace else, (laughs) in terms of some of its policies, anyway. And the question is, what do you do, or how do you relate to something that's basically unpleasant? And it's uh, the, the the pain is physically unpleasant, and the example you used is emotionally unpleasant, or you know whatever whatever aspect of mind it is. And just as the first the first lesson we have to learn with the physical pain is being accepting, you know, like that's the foundation then for doing anything. The same way with with um, you know, situations in, in social action situations. Because if we're coming from a place of anger, then what are we putting out? We're just, we're putting out more of what we're protesting against or, you know, being involved against. Um, and so I think that the first step in relating to it is really to check out our own mind space and to see if it's possible to come to a place of Acceptance, not in the sense of passively sitting back and not doing anything, but more in the sense of equanimity in our minds. One way to cultivate equanimity is to reflect upon the law of karma. You know, that it's not by accident that things are happening. There are reasons why... You know, people think the way they do and, and enact policies the way they do. It's not just, you know, it's not just happening out of the blue. And if we can make our minds large enough and expand our mind to see, even not very precisely, but at least to appreciate the fact that it's it's all a karmic unfolding, then the equanimity factor. Mm, there's more possibility for it to be there. Out of equanimity, then, there can be really decisive action. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Gandhi yet, but as an example of somebody who really does a lot from a loving space, not from a blaming space. Um, So I don't know whether that's helpful or not. Also, it might be interesting... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that I want to say this. <laughs> That's the trouble with these machines. It just—it has to do with. I, I was out in California a few years ago, and and I was having this discussion with a guy named Dwayne Elgin, a very bright guy, and he wrote this book on voluntary simplicity, and he's very involved in in social action. It's really a, a big part of his life. And we got into talking about the difference between responding to different situations that need um, responding to and attach whether that's coming out of an attachment to the planet or just coming as a response out of equanimity. Because just as we can get attached to you know, our thoughts or emotions or our bodies or relationships or situations a lot of people are really attached to the planet. And I think that's a basic problem. 
because regardless of what we do or don't do, you know, the sun is going to explode in four and a half billion years and that'll be the end of the earth. What's four and a half billion years? You know, in (laughs) the cosmic scheme of things. And so I... I just think it's valuable to look at really what our what our motive is, you know, and whether it's coming from a place of attachment or coming from a place of compassion. Does that make sense to you? Can you? It, it makes sense, and I, I realize there's another aspect, I guess, to, to the question, of, and it has to do, I guess, with, with powerlessness and, and that feeling of powerlessness in, in oneself, because I guess. It's partly about the government, but just partly about being personally in a situation where you're I'm not empowered vis-a-vis. Are you empowered with never mind the government or politics or the economy? Are you empowered with uh, your thoughts? Thoughts don't come. Body don't hurt. Don't get old. The Buddha said that we don't even own, we can't even claim to own this mind and body, much less anything else. And that's one of the meanings of anatta. The ungovernableness of the elements. And so really all we can do is to try to understand the laws which govern them. And so then to, to get into harmony with it. I think there is a fundamental powerlessness. One of the laws governing things is the law of karma. You know, and regardless of our desire, and, and the Buddha said to think, you know, that we, we can do a deed and to wish, let this deed not ripen. Let the fruit of this deed not happen. Impossible. He said, you, you know, you can go off to the most remote cave or be flying in outer space, and when it's time for that deed to ripen, it will. And so in a very fundamental sense, <laughs> there's a powerlessness as long as we don't understand the laws which are governing the unfolding. And when we're in harmony with them, then you could call that a true empowering. But if this is all the case then, Joseph, there's really no way we can know that it's best for man to survive on this planet. And doesn't that leave us in a position then of just taking no action? No, I, I think that I, I think that <laughs> you're right. We don't know, and so then each individual will do what they do, and some will take action, and some won't take action. And both of those, if if they're done from a place of balance, from compassion, I could see I could see both of those actions coming from a place of compassion. Yeah. See, I, d- I don't know how, how receptive you are or connected with the Buddhist cosmology, but my mind is really clicks right into it. And so when you, you just have this uh, model you know, of 31 planes of existence in this world system and tens of thousands of world systems, this, it sort of lessens the intensity of this particular drama. <laughs> You know, because and, and in the description it talks of you know the creation and duration and destruction of whole world systems. You know, as, as but we get we get very uh, real small or narrow in our viewpoint. You know, and it's just and from from that really narrow narrow viewpoint, then things look rather catastrophic. But when the viewpoint is you know, real big, all the eons and world systems, it tends to create a balance. 
and again, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sort of trying to foist that belief system on you. It is part of the traditional teachings, and I feel real connected with. It, but I mean, it's real important for you to come to your own intuitive sense of it. So doesn't compassion lead us to uh, to do something about people suffering? I mean, if we recognize it and and we are we can influence it. It seems like it, it just follows naturally that we would do something. Okay, I, I agree with you that that. Really, compassion is the natural response to suffering. It's almost like when the mind is clear, to some extent, it's not even something that has to be practiced. It's like when suffering reflects in the mirror, right? compassion is the response. The question, though, is what's a truly compassionate action? Is it compassionate or is it the most compassionate thing to deal with symptoms? It's true that there's tremendous suffering in the world, and one level is to alleviate the symptoms of it. Another level is to, as best as possible, try to alleviate the root cause of it. And sometimes you can't alleviate the root cause until you alleviate the symptoms. What about a guy or a woman, yogi, sitting in a cave in the Himalayas sending metta? Is that more or less effective than feeding somebody? You know, I don't know. But I, I can certainly entertain the possibility that it's as effective. So that's why I think that it's not so much to... Um, sort of create a, create a model of what compassionate action is because there's just a whole range. And just to f- each one of us to follow our heart, you know, in terms of what seems appropriate in a particular situation. But what happens among, very often among, there are different schools of compassionate action <laughs> and often they're quite sectarian. Yeah. And I think that's the real unnecessary. Did that answer what you were? I mean, for for the most part, the Buddha did not go around healing people, healing diseases, even though undoubtedly he had the ability, right? because he wasn't interested in working on that level. He was, he was much more concerned with the root cause of, of samsaric existence, not a particular symptom, you know, that, that may come up. Because you cure one disease, you know, and another one comes. And, and that's not at all to say that healing, I, I, Go to healers, <laughs> you know, and that's a wonderful thing to be doing. But there are other levels of, of working also. If the Dharma is being brought to the West, um, what would you think is the most effective way of dealing with sectarian? My experience has been that sectarianism really is diminished in personal contact with people, you know, in other traditions. N- not only not only in other Buddhist traditions, but in other spiritual traditions. And then my sense is that the sectarianism grows when there's not much contact, because you know when we're having contact, then it's human being to human being. And it's so clear that everything else is a concept. 
right? in the in the immediacy of the con- of the personal contact and communication. And I think that's one of the things that's quite noticeably happening in in America. You know, there's a real cross fertilization that's fantastic. I don't know that you have the sense of the. I mean, we are all involved in a most fantastic thing. It's like first generation, you know, transmission of Dharma to the West. And, I mean, historically, when you look over the the evolve, the evolution, you know, the Dharma. It's like when it went from India to to China and Japan and Burma. You know, it, it totally transformed these cultures. It had such a powerful impact. And it's just, it's like we're all doing that. It's like we're right at the beginning of that happening, you know, in our culture. And it's tremendously exciting when you see your practice not only in terms of your personal liberation, but in terms of the effect and the truly like spearheading a whole development. I was thinking of the, the nuclear issue, which engenders so much fear. Uh, I saw some numbers recently. One can think it, but it, it, it loses meaning. Uh, apparently, how easily the Earth would be destroyed if anything happened. And It seems that there's got to be a lot of fear in a lot of people. And it doesn't seem like compassion for others is the predominant place. Because it's us, you know, it's, it's like the fear seems to be personal. And there's nobody personal. I don't know, it's like it's hard to make the personal contact. I, I, I haven't worked in that, in the issue. I was just sort of wondering, um, to deal with that so one doesn't just come out of fear because I've seen whenever I operate out of fear invariably it's the wrong thing and it also feels like in some way the the earth is maybe if I accepted the believed in the entire Buddhist cosmology I would feel more certain about it has one work with perhaps with the sense of is the only earth we've got and maybe there are other all sorts of things, but it's a sort of valuable place. How to deal with not from attachment and yet wanting <laughs> to keep it going. <laughs> In some sense it's real really simple. You continue your practice and you do what you do. You know, because you can't be ahead of yourself. It, to the degree that there's fear, there'll be fear. And you can have the idea that there shouldn't be fear, but that doesn't help much. And so really all we can do is continue our practice and get involved in whatever way we each feel is appropriate. Um. From my experience, I think some of the most effective work that's being done on the nuclear issue is really using the Dharma. Um, there's a woman named Joanna Macy who does workshops on despair and empowerment, exactly the issue um, that we're talking about here. Um, and basically, it's just opening up to one's fear, allowing it instead of repressing it, and then working through the fear and, and becoming more active in a spontaneous way. So, incredibly effective political training, as it were, through the Dharma. You know, just as, as we're talking about this, my mind keeps going to uh, how in some sense people, and it, it's understandable why this happens, but people's minds can uh, be very concerned in, in a sensitive way you know, to the whole issue of, uh, to the whole nuclear issue and not be concerned with not be particularly concerned with 
where they may be going in their next life. If you want a little boost for your practice, you know, read some of the... Uh, and if you, have a, if you have a balanced mind. <laughs> if you don't have a balanced mind, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> but read some of the descriptions of uh, the lower realms. It makes, it makes the destruction of Earth seem like nothing. You know, and I mean, it's understandable. One is quite right in front of us, and we can, you know, it's tangible, and the other is maybe just an idea. But again, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence if you begin to investigate for the reality, you know, of other lives and other realms. The evidence is to be found, one, in in very many well-documented cases of people remembering their past lives. Uh, As an example, I think some of you were here when Munindra was here and talking about that uh, young boy in Sri Lanka who started chanting the Abhidhamma in Pali when he was two or three uh, in the hardest, you know, the hardest text and remembered when he was a monk in... Buddha Gosa's time in Sri Lanka and they, he took he took people to the ancient ruins and he pointed out places where the library used to be and they excavated and you know there was many there are many many s- stories uh, that have been documented about people remembering that, that they couldn't have known right just from their present lifetime also there are there are people who have the power of mind both to see past lives and also to see other realms. Um, and people as you, whom, as you get to know them, there's just a... there's a trust that they're not lying. You know, you <laughs> Somebody asked Deepama when she was in California, you know, people were very direct with her, and it was in some group discussion like this, and, and they just really pinpointed her. You know, do you know from your experience, not from what you've read or some idea, you know, about about the other realms? And just without any hesitation, she said yes. Yeah. And again, that's that's not tangible evidence. The the first example I gave is more more scientific in a way. But still, when you get to know these people, it lends credence. Also, a lot of it is, in practice, you develop a much wider range of skillful means of communication. You know, because you can say something one way and it turns somebody off. You say it another way and it just opens up a whole new space for them. And that takes a lot of practice and sensitivity, you know, to to really see the way in to a person's mind and heart. And that's just a real, real skillful means in communication. Uh, 
a little more about restraint. Could you say something about uh, balance and restraint? So it's like when there's a really strong attachment or a really strong pull, and then I exercise restraint, sometimes it feels like there's a backlash. Uh, or that there's so much effort involved in the restraint that it seems counterproductive. It's kind of how to know, and is there any way to avoid that or work with that? I think that's a real common experience. (laughs) And... um, What's important is to stay mindful just of the whole process, not to have a preconception or a model of how it's going to turn out. For example, if there's a strong desire and you're aware of it and you exercise some restraint and you you stay mindful of that whole process, you're aware of the desire, you're aware of the restraint, and then all of a sudden you feel kind of a tightening or a, or a backlash and you're aware of that and then maybe because of that you go for it you go you know you reach out for it and so you're mindful of that right? because that will undoubtedly happen many times um, but sometimes it's going to happen that the restraint actually is going to be without any you will actually be able to just not bite, not go for it. Um, So I would not practice it because sometimes it's not going to be true restraint or true whatever word we want to use. Right, just one other thing. What's important then is not becoming judgmental. If you find that there is this backlash and then you, you go for it, Again, it's just to watch the process. One important thing to keep in mind as you do the practice is that it's awareness itself which purifies the mind, not some idea of how we're supposed to be. Because that never works. You know, the idea of how we're supposed to be is not how we are. And so basically it just causes conflict to let go of that model and to realize that it's the awareness, the cultivation of awareness, which is the purifying process. Just as a corollary to that, something which may not be obvious on the surface, that it's more skillful to do an unwholesome act knowingly than unknowingly. And you wouldn't think that at first. You'd think, well, it's better, you know, if you don't know it's unwholesome, that's kind of an excuse. And if you know it's unwholesome, it's really bad to do it. But when you reflect on it deeper, you can see, and you can see how it reflects this awareness, this purification. When we do something unwholesome and we don't know it's unwholesome, there's no seed there, there's no possibility of letting go of that action because we don't even know it's unwholesome. It's, it's total delusion. If we do something unwholesome and we know it, it's true. You know, the force of desire may be there in greed or anger and we'll act on it. But the knowing that it's unskillful is already the seed. There's, there's some wisdom there. You know, it's the beginning of, of letting go of it. And it's in that sense that it's awareness which purifies. And so, it's not to get judgmental. Uh, it's just to be watchful. Oh, here I go again. Yeah. Perhaps desperation in that you really begin to question where is the happiness? What's really going to, to bring relief from this whole sense of dilemma and mm-hmm. suffering? At that point, there's like an openness to, to, to perceiving how, how the whole process is occurring. For me, there is one line which I've mentioned to many of you in interviews, which I think it's one of my favorite lines, which was written by this monk in, 
on a cave in Thailand. Oh, what joy to know there is no happiness in this world. It's so right on in the sense that it's the understanding, the appreciation that nothing out there is going to do it for us. You know, there'll be temporary pleasures, and, but it's all impermanent, all passing. When we realize that, oh, what joy to know there is no happiness in the world. Because when we know it, then we can stop seeking. We can stop this frantic reaching out and grasping for happiness in ways that are not going to bring it. And it's this tremendous relief and tremendous joy of just settling back into the moment. question with respect to commitments uh, like if you make a resolve with yourself uh, say to do eight precepts for a month and halfway through it seems like it's not working or you're getting uptight but you made a commitment it's like what you know what to do is it again to have a model of what you should do is not going to help because what you do will depend on your evolution of mind, will depend on your understanding of commitment. (laughs) Two extremes, in a way. Something Manindra used to say, (laughs) he he would say often, don't make vows because you can only break them. (laughs) That was his his take on it. Even though he himself is tremendously strong will. You know, when he decides something unmovable. Uh, so that's one side. On the other side, you read in like the Vasudhimaga of monks so committed to the fine points of the Vinaya, of the discipline, and real technicalities, that they would rather die than break them. But we can't be who we're not. You know, and so... Again, I think it comes back to paying attention. You know, we do what we do. And if we're paying attention, we learn from it. I mean, I think generally, the uh, this, this ties into another question, which is really important. There is obviously a strength of mind which comes from really honoring a commitment. It builds a lot of determination and strength and resolution. If the commitment is not followed, then it's a whole question of what we do with it. Is there guilt? What's, you know, and self-judgment? Because that's just that's just another ego trick. <coughs> Excuse me. 
is there forgiveness? Real self-forgiveness. Guilt is guilt denies change. Guilt is a very unforgiving attitude. And so, if we make a commitment and then we break it, which I'm sure we all have that experience, then what's the reaction of mind? Do we then add to that an uptightness and a suffering or an acknowledgement? Okay, that's what happened. Let's begin again. I guess for me, another thing that's important in that is the difference between justifying breaking it and really being responsible for breaking it. Because with one, it seems like I, I put cement over the pattern. It's kind of like I established in that pattern uh, of breaking it. Right. right. found it very helpful to uh, be realistic about the, uh, the goal I set for the commitment within the limits of what I'm really capable of. Right. Otherwise, there's, again, there's that model of thinking who I should be and a lot of pride coming when we you know, go after it. And right. so, uh, just in learning to become sensitive to realistically what I just shouldn't commit myself to because right. it just doesn't work. I'll follow AP sets for four hours. <laughs> I should be able to do that one. <laughs> no, I think. <laughs> you know, it might, uh, it's a very uh, important question, and we really haven't discussed it as a group, but when I was sitting on retreat earlier, uh, I found it very helpful to work with that kind of commitment, and, and the eight precepts is one way. You know, of doing it, because it also it also works with that uh, the power of restraint, and um, I did it as, as you were suggesting in blocks of time. You know, and said, okay, for a week or for ten days, you know, and so it made it it made it very workable, and so that would be another way for you to work here while you're practicing. It, it could be any kind of discipline. It, it need not be the eight precepts, although that's you know, a handy one. Anything else? Okay. <laughs>